This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to our program, and I would like to remind you, dear listener, that... We still need your help to meet our pledge drive goals. I'm only going to say it once, but that once would be that you are hereby urged to go to fundraiser.kdvs.org and help us meet our goal of raising $60,000. We need your help, and we do need you to enter into a partnership with us, which, let's face it, you've already done by listening. So, partner, it's time for you to step up. Please do so. We hope also that you caught the Capital Steps performance here in Sacramento on the Cinco de Mayo. And if you did, please give us some feedback at info at radioparallax.com. Owing to other obligations, yours truly was unable to attend, and I also missed the subsequent show in Livermore and missed my third shot at him in Modesto, but that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. We expect to be joined before the hour is up by by some old friends to help us... uh, talk about things going on in this world. We're also hoping that uh, my wingman during the Pledge Drive, Ed Martin, will join us to talk about some, uh, well, curious phenomenon south of the Mason-Dixon line and maybe some legal matters as well. But let us start today's program as we always like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 9th of May. It's a big day for sailing. On May 9th in 1502, the Italian-born Spanish explorer Christopher Columbus sails from Cadiz, Spain on his fourth and sadly last voyage to the New World. This was uh, quite a scaled-down adventure from the second expedition, which flushed from the success of the first and went over with a huge flotilla. And we we should do a segment on the history of Columbus and his explorations. Mr. Merlot, make a note of that. All right. A century and a half later, on May 9th in 1671, Thomas Blood, an Irish adventurer better known as Captain Blood, was captured in attempting to steal the crown jewels from the Tower of London. Whoa! That was a gutsy move. He became a celebrity in England and died in 1680 and was, I think, the subject of the, uh, the movie made with Errol Flynn here in America in the 1930s. Pretty sure it's the same guy. Good movie with Errol Flynn, by the way which I'd swear I saw in 194 Chem back in the, uh, in the Pleistocene era. But I could be wrong. This day in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson proclaimed a new national holiday in the U.S. Mother's Day. Mother's Day is coming up this Sunday, and we urge all of you to do what you can to honor that person that at one point had to carry you around for nine months. That lays on and me to blame Cause mama tried Here's an entry we like, according to our This Week in History book from the History Channel, which notes that on May 9th in 1926, American polar explorer Richard E. Berg and co-pilot Floyd Bennett claim they flew this day over the North Pole. In 1966, notes the book, evidence emerged to suggest that they may have been 150 miles short of the pole. We would go a step further and refer you to the book Cheats, Charlatans, and Chicanery by Andreas Schroeder. It pretty much tells the story of how uh, Admiral Byrd flew out of sight and flew in circles till he was almost out of gas, then came back. On this date in 1969, William Beecher, military correspondent for the New York Times, published a front-page article reporting that American military aircraft 
have begun secretly bombing Cambodia during the Vietnam War. We at Radio Parallax would like to acknowledge the actions of Mr. Beecher along with all other investigative reporters that keep us apprised of the things we really should know that our government's doing. And perhaps most importantly on this day in 1960, the FDA approved the world's first commercially produced birth control pill, Enovid 10, made by the G.D. Serrell Company of Chicago. Development of the pill was initially commissioned by birth control pioneer Margaret Sanger and funded by heiress Catherine McCormick. Sanger opened the first birth control clinic in the U.S. in 1916. In the early 1950s, Gregory Pincus, a biochemist, and John Rock, a gynecologist, began work on a birth control pill. Clinical tests of the pill were initiated in 1954, and on this day in 1960, the FDA finally approved the pill, granting greater reproductive freedom to American women, and starting the sexual revolution. And leading to that great Groucho Marx quip that when I heard there was a sexual revolution going on, I tried to enlist, but all I got was a series of humiliating rejections. Our quote of the day, oddly enough, comes from Mike Tyson, who, according to The Week magazine, said last week, referring to an episode we'll explain in a minute, it just wasn't the right thing to do. That's why she's not my woman anymore. He quotes in reference to Tyson revealing that he once broke up with a girlfriend after she cooked and ate one of his beloved racing pigeons. Tyson elaborated, I was dating this young lady and she said, I don't know why you're flying those damn birds. You should be eating them. Tyson, who owns about 350 pigeons, was not pleased when a woman grabbed one of the birds and proceeded to cook it up and eat it. And that's why she's not his woman anymore. Our quip of the day comes from composer-writer H.I. Phillips, who said, Oratory is the art of making deep noises from the chest sound like important messages from the brain. Our stat of the day is that one in 20 patients, according to the AP, admitted to U.S. hospitals picks up an infection they didn't have when they arrived. These infections cause the death of 100,000 people a year, which... Maybe the reason why you hear that stat thrown around that doctors kill 100,000 people a year. That's an issue we've covered before and will cover again. Oh, by the way, I have a bonus quip, which comes from William Patsert, climatologist for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In the wake of L.A. going three straight months with almost no precipitation, Patsert said, It's so dry in Los Angeles that crooks are siphoning off radiators instead of gas tanks. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for selling your soul to (laughs) mindless corporate enterprise with the news that a New York City realty company is offering employees a 15% raise if they tattoo the firm's logo onto their bodies. Apparently, at least 40 employees have taken Rapid Realty's offer by getting the double R tattoo on various body parts, including ankles, arms, and necks. CEO Anthony Lolly says tattoos show employees commitment, adding, talk about marketing, they're walking billboards. Well, as on the other hand, a bad week last week for... Going double or nothing with the news that a New Hampshire man spent his entire life savings, 
which was only $2,600, on a carnival ball toss game only to win a stuffed banana. Said Gary Gribholm, age 30, you just get caught up in the whole I've got to win my money back thing. And it was kind of an ugly week last week for exercising one's Second Amendment rights with the news that a Minnesota firearms instructor apparently shot himself in the hand while trying to show that his handgun wouldn't go off in its holster. Said Fred Peterson, age 66, the gun was pointed in a safe direction, but my finger was not in a good spot. And from the Only in America file, or maybe it's from the Only in LA file, actually, I'm not sure it's either. It's from the What Were They Thinking file, piece by Adam Nagorny in the New York Times, reprinted in our local Sacramento Bee, noted that uh, Los Angeles has now put turnstiles in its subway. The piece notes that their appearance amounts to an acknowledgement of the failure of the rider honor system that L.A. embraced when it began constructing its subway 20 years ago. Noted the writer, this might not exactly come as a news flash to anyone who's traveled the subways of New York or the Washington Metro, but a gateless subway entrance is not the most effective way to motivate riders to pay their way. Apparently, L.A. thought that if you just put a deputy sheriff on board every so often to, uh, to ask people if they've got a ticket and then finding them $250, uh, if they don't, it would motivate people to pay up, but uh, it didn't. The piece quotes Xavier Nailing, a hospital custodian, saying that he routinely rides without paying a fare and does not fear the consequences. They quote him as saying, Nothing ever happens when somebody writes me a ticket. The last time someone wrote me a ticket, I looked at the cop and said, You know what? How long you been on the force? You can write me that ticket, but you're going to stand there and watch me tear it up, because I know it's not going to be enforced. Now, I'd hate to imply that Mr. Nailing is typical of Los Angelinos, but apparently he's typical enough to where they're going to like get rid of the honor system. Of course, some people in LA are claiming whether it's going to be worth it to put the $46 million of installation costs for turnstiles in place, plus the $100,000 a month in maintenance. But, um, well, we're no economists, but we kind of tend to think that it should eventually pay off, unless they got the same kind of city management down in LA we have here in Sacramento, trying to calculate the costs of new arenas, but I think we'll not go there today. But my favorite quote from this piece was, the bottom line is, said Joel Epstein, a transit advocate, what sort of city does not lock turnstiles in its transit system? All right, our joke of the day. An Irish woman visited her physician to complain about her husband's erectile dysfunction. Now, he's interested, doctor, said the woman, but he's having trouble performing, so he gets frustrated, and so do I. Have you considered Viagra? asked the doctor. He won't take so much as an aspirin, so that won't work, unless I did maybe an Irish Viagra. What's that? asked the doctor. Well, I could slip one in his coffee. Well, you could indeed, said the doc. The coffee shouldn't affect the drug. Why don't you give me a call in a week and let me have a progress report? A week later, the woman calls back. Faith in Begora, doctor. It was a horrible disaster. Just horrible. What happened? asked the doc. Well, I slipped the pill into his morning coffee, all right. Then I started flirting with him something fierce. Yeah. He started to respond, you know. Well, the pill was obviously working. Okay. Well, he took me into his arms, peeled off his dungarees, and he made the most passionate love to me right there on the tabletop. That was horrible? Oh, gracious, no. It was the best sex we've had in years. So what was so bad? Well, I got to tell you, doctor, it's a sure bet they're never, ever going to be letting us back into that Starbucks. Good love. 
All right, let's do a bit of follow-up. We talked, I don't know, a year or two ago about the fact that the U.S. government is trying to get out of the helium business. Apparently back in the 1920s, uh, with, with fear of German Zeppelins uh, uh, bombing uh, Europe, which, which actually was done in World War I, the U.S. government formed a helium reserve to stockpile uh, huge amounts of the gas, and it's still in effect many decades later. Some people are saying this is an example of how once the government does something, you can never get rid of it. But some folks are saying that uh, if they basically sell off their operation of this helium reserve, that, um, I don't know, that it may get used up too quickly, and that market forces uh, might not pan out. I think there's some precedence for this. We've talked on this program about how... Uh, uh, colchicine, a drug that had been around since the 1920s to treat gout, had been quite inexpensive until some bright spark got the idea that the reason it's not a patented medicine is no one's done a clinical trial on it, and if we do that and then patent it, we can start jacking the price up, which is exactly what's happened to colchicine. I think its price is, I don't know, something like 10 times what it was when I was in training. So it's easy to envision someone getting a hold of uh, or cornering the market <laughs> the world helium supply by taking over the government reserve and, I don't know, making the cost of MRIs, uh, to say nothing of party balloons, um, a lot more expensive. I don't know. If you've got an opinion on this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We asked that before. Nobody responded. I guess helium is not an interesting subject, but let's give it another go. We've talked in this program about how executives seem to be uh, somewhat overpaid, I think it's fair to note. This apparently is not a problem that is confined to industry. Uh, this, the same issue has been raised in the pay for college executives. Recent article on this in Bloomberg News by John Heckinger and Michael McDonald, noting that the University of Chicago paid James Madara $2.5 million in severance when he stepped down in 2009 as medical dean and hospital chief. Madara remained on the faculty and later became CEO of the American Medical Association. Article notes that Harvard and Stanford universities also offer real estate loans with some sweet terms for their executives. Of course, in defensive universities, we have to note that uh, at least the uh, executives are not generally crashing the economy as they uh, are handed paychecks sometimes in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But that guy we quoted some time back, I think it was Dick Fold of uh, Lehman Brothers, I believe, when asked by Congress if it wasn't true that he'd made like $500 million while running Lehman Brothers into the ground, he corrected them and says, no, 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 it was, it was more like $400 million. But of course, things are grim in academia. Article by Catherine Rampell, the New York Times we've been sitting on for a while, notes that uh, the college degree is becoming the new high school diploma. It's kind of the new minimum requirement albeit an expensive one, for getting the lowest level jobs. Article cites the 45-person law firm of Bush, Slipikoff, well, there's a great name for a lawyer, Slipikoff and Show in Atlanta, a place that had seen tremendous growth in the college-educated population. Like other employers across the country, the firm hires only people with a bachelor's degree, even for jobs that do not require college-level skills. The uh, photos accompanying the piece show a gal walking down the hall delivering files. Peace notes this prerequisite applies to everyone, including the receptionist, the paralegals, the administrative assistants, and the file clerks. 
Even, they note, the office runner, which I guess is the gal carrying the files down the hall. Peace does note that the risk of hiring college graduates for jobs they are supremely overqualified for is, of course, that they will leave as soon as they find something better. But they quote <laughs> Mr. Slipikoff saying that his firm had little turnover, though, largely because it's been expanding so rapidly. The company had grown to more than 30 lawyers from just five in 2008, which I think is itself another sign that the economy is in trouble. And by the way, the opinion that more lawyers is bad for the economy does not necessarily represent the views of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, which does operate a whole bunch of law schools, doesn't it? Here's an item from the Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire file. Dateline Santa Ana. Here's the item. After finalizing its partnership with a Catholic hospital group, Hogue Memorial Hospital Presbyterian told its Orange County doctors last week they'll no longer be allowed to perform elective abortions. Hogue CEO Robert Braithwaite told the Orange County Register the new rule wasn't imposed (laughs) by St. Joseph's Health System and was based on medical reasons, not religion. The article notes that abortions and contraception is prohibited at St. Joseph's. Some of Hoag's gynecologists and obstetricians say they're surprised and upset by the change, adding they were led to believe the new affiliation with the Catholic organization wouldn't change the nature of care they could offer. They are skeptical that the change doesn't reflect St. Joseph's Catholic values. But of course, CEO Braithwaite, with pants aflame, countered that the hospital performs fewer than 100 such abortions every year, and low volume can mean low quality of care. Yes, much the same can be said about low levels of ethics among CEOs in this correspondence opinion, and we just did the disclaimer, so I guess I'm okay, Mr. McMillan? Yes. Ah, good. No, I guess when a CEO can say with a straight face that we're doing this for medical reasons, not religious, because all of a sudden... Out of the blue, abortions have become unsafe. Well, let's just say that's not credible. All right, we've got one medical item, I think, to close this segment with, which is a little more upbeat than the last. This is actually rather revolutionary in a very, very good way. Piece comes from uh, New Scientist magazine. We've been holding on to this one since February 9th. And notes that every day doctors prescribe antibiotics based on an educated guess about which bugs are causing the symptoms they see before them. Sometimes they guess wrong. <laughs> yeah, take it from me. And it can take days or weeks for tests to identify the true culprits. In the meantime, people are taking ineffective drugs, contributing to the growing problem of antibiotic resistance. But a solution could come in the shape of a machine capable of identifying all bacteria, viruses, and fungi known to cause infectious disease in humans. Holy mackerel. Tests of the Plex ID universal biosensor suggest it's more accurate than the standard method, which involves growing the offending pathogen in a dish. And of course, some types of bacteria take forever to grow, and some are almost impossible to grow. And viruses and fungi have their own set of problems. So this, this could be quite a game changer for the medical profession. This device has been developed by the U.S. pharmaceutical company Abbott. It combines and adapts two existing techniques. 
Microbial samples from fluids like saliva and blood are processed to isolate the genetic material. Regions of this DNA are selected according to their likely origin and copied using the polymerase chain reaction, which is now being used in all kinds of applications. The DNA fragments are then more or less weighed by passing them through a sophisticated mass spectrometry device. From this, the composition of the base pairs of the DNA can be calculated by cross-checking base pair compositions from multiple DNA regions against a database of genetic fingerprints of known microbes reveals the bug's identity. They've been using this Plex ID system for research purposes now for several years, and, and of course it originally uh, sprung from a focus on identifying potential biological warfare agents, so I guess this is one uh, potential benefit from uh, the military industry, perhaps. Peace notes that in 2003, an earlier model correctly identified a new type of coronavirus as the cause of SARS. Six years later, it was used to identify the first two cases of H1N1 swine flu in the U.S. The existing version identifies microbes in eight hours. If the smaller version currently in development can do so in five hours, as is planned, it could allow doctors to wait for an accurate diagnosis before prescribing treatment. This is going to be pretty cool. If it pans out, it looks like it might. So on that note, let's take a break. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. And like I said, bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria? Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria? That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Salmonella grows on raw chicken, especially old chicken. Moist foods like our salad. Staph bacteria on the left and strep bacteria on the right. Salmonella, Shigella, Clostridium infringens. If you didn't wash your hands, they would become breeding grounds for bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria.